Good day to you all. My name is Lucas and welcome to another podcast episode. Today I'll be interviewing my brother. He is a philosophy teacher. I think I can call him that. He'll speak a bit more about that. He's uh, There he is. He makes music and he's very interesting. So um, let's interview him, see what he has to say. Hello, sir. Hello there. I was just Hello. making an introduction for you. Oh, really? Did yes, you already start without me? Yeah, I did. <laughs> anyway, let's talk about you. What is your name? Who are you? Um, my name is Adel, and I'd like to not say my last name because I don't want to be doxxed. Um, but I know that everyone here knows your last name. So I guess that is filled already. Um, my I'm 26 years old. I've been um I've been studying philosophy and now teaching philosophy. Uh, I've also been sort of a musician hobbyist, I'd say. And I guess, what else might I add? I'm uh, Lucas' brother. Um, I'm somewhat shorter than he is, but uh, I am older. And I think what else can I might I add? Now I'm currently uh, residing in the Netherlands where I've basically lived all my life with the exception of having lived in Dublin for one year for uh, that musician hobbyism that I was talking about. That's it. I think we can call it more than a, a hobby in your case. I think Aaron is a very good musician. And I think it also may be what gets you into the flow state, is it not? Um, the more I play it, the more it does. Yeah. It's like, and then uh, if I don't play it for a while, which sometimes happens nowadays, and uh, then it's more difficult to get into it. But if I then, but but even then, it's very possible to get into the flow state. Yes, um, for sure. But yes, also so collecting flow state if you play with other people, which yeah. is also very nice about it. Yeah. Because you do perform quite a bit still. Because last week I saw you performing. You have been performing over the years. Let's say a little bit right. here and there. Yeah, so you're keeping it fresh. That's correct. But I've also, I, th I think um, that when at some point I was thinking, okay, I should take this a bit more seriously yep. again, because I had been taking it seriously for a while, you know, kind of trying to perform every few weeks, if it, even if it was like, you know, kind of a low-key uh, low unpaid gig. Uh, so then I started performing at the restaurant where I was working in 2020, and I was like, okay, nice. So it's picking up again. And then COVID happened. And that's kind of like when, okay, so now, you know, public performances are kind of, well, it was just not going to happen. So I kind of dropped it again and it became a hobby again. And now I'm sort of at this point like, okay, COVID is over. I have no more, no excuse. And now I'm trying to pick it up again by, uh, yeah, doing some performances here and there. That's true. Good. I think uh, you can go very high pitch and also lower, which I really like. Because I was just listening to some of your performances online. You can find him, guys. Just Google his name. Um, and I really Please like don't that. like, I'm like a baby there in those performances. But, no, uh, it's anyway. the best. It's really good. <laughs> I really like it. Okay. Um, so I want to talk a bit about your your philosophy, um, how you got there, uh, who you like is in terms of thinkers. And I think we can start at the start of your academic career, because I know you didn't start off with philosophy, pure philosophy, when you started university. So can you tell us a bit about how you how you got started? Yeah, it's kind of interesting, like, because I, even um, philosophy was already an option 
during our secondary school. So friends of mine took philosophy, but I didn't. Um, and it's not to say that I didn't find it interesting. I guess I was just really already going through a nihilistic phase at the time. I honestly, I didn't feel a lot of wonder for um, topics. So I just kind of picked whatever way I could find. Like you can sort of see my um, my grades throughout secondary school. Like they start off this and they sort of slowly go here, which is why I still passed. It was fine. But if it would have started here, it would have been way worse. Um, and which is kind of strange because I was also always known as the type of guy that was interested in, you know, uh, having conversations with people. Um, and I think also, and, and, and I think that dimension is also somewhat awakened by the fact that I, at some point, wandered off my um, religious orientation. Uh, so then, and the, the reason for wandering it off wasn't so like, oh, it's just boring. It's also like, thinking like well does god really exist so yeah start asking those questions where you're kind of attuned for it and then um then i went to uh dublin for a year so i didn't really focus on philosophy uh, at all i mean i had conversations with uh, like a good friend of mine for instance uh marnix like i always have very philosophical conversation with him and i always um did so that always helped. And then indeed I started after that year, I started uh, doing university college and that's liberal arts and sciences. And I'm mostly, uh, I know that that degree gets made fun of quite a lot, but for me, it was perfect because I honestly did not know what I wanted to do. Uh, and you can very gradually um, find your way through, which is what I needed because I thought that kind of my strong suit was history. Um, but I also knew that I'd kind of been doing economics. So I I picked history and economics and kind of see and, I liked it for sure, especially history, economics, not so much. And then in my second semester, I took philosophy and I was pretty much sold. Like, like or I, was, I, was, I, was, I was immediately hooked, let me mm. put it that way. Um, who sold you? Who, what do you mean? Like who, who hooked me or what hooked me? Or Well, I guess the question could be answered with a name, name of a professor or a name of a philosopher or the format. Yeah. I don't know. Well, so it's interesting. Like I, um, I think at this point I was really my my faith in my faith was <laughs> close to no. I shouldn't say non-existent, but it's just it was it was very passive. So I wasn't interested um, in uh, questions surrounding Christianity and such. But I had a professor, um, David Aiken is his name. I think there might be some videos of his. Up on youtube as well but he is i think he's an amazing professor he's probably my favorite professor in my life but he was he probably grew up in a fundamentalist christian environment in america i'm not sure at least like very strict uh so it almost it seemed to have traumatized him in some ways uh and you can tell because in his courses whenever he brought up christianity he was like so passionately arguing against it uh like that it was even strange for us because most of us were kind of just like you know progressive non-believers uh so it's just kind of like okay what's this guy on about sometimes even uh and for me that kind of brought me back into it because i felt that a lot of his criticism was unfair <laughs> uh and i was kind of like okay i like I, I think that's just a lousy argument because that's not how i remember my christian background so then i started sort of arguing like sort of devil's advocate, ironically, um, arguing against it. Um, so I think he really sparked my interest because then I started 
revisiting all these uh, questions in surrounding religious uh, topics from a more philosophical perspective. And then especially, I think when I read Nietzsche, I thought that was very fascinating. But to be fair, you know, at this, in your first year, you're, you can, you don't really read. Like, even if you read, you don't really yeah. read them. Yeah. <laughs> so I think I discovered Nietzsche only later, even though I started reading him then, you know? Okay. Yeah. So who was Friedrich Nietzsche? Uh, should I introduce like you can introduce you can introduce him a little bit like we don't have to speak about him for a long time but I think it's important to your work yeah. and who you speak about well I th- Nietzsche is a very interesting thinker he was born in 1844 uh, in uh, Rücken in Germany and um, it was a very interesting time because this was at a time when philosophy kind of didn't have like philosophy had sort of slowly been building up in the in the centuries before and you can kind of tell that philosophers are responding to each other and he was kind of at this time where um it was kind of unclear so he he was born in this more romantic period of philosophy but the romanticism is was much more interested in art and poetry uh, which is also why um later on in his life he really became a strong devotee of Richard Wagner the great composer kind of became almost like a father figure for him and then later turned on him because well that that's i don't need, need to go into, into that now uh, you God. That, yeah well it's, it's, that that's correct you've probably read at, at least that's what someone says it was it, it was in your thesis yeah yeah that indeed uh, a close contact of his says like oh he was so happy when he could visit wagner like going to his god every sunday which i yeah. thought was kind of ironic because at that point well i should indeed add like nietzsche was born in a very devout religious lutheran family um born to a lutheran pastor uh his father unfortunately passed away very quickly um and nietzsche himself was a very devout little christian boy he was called the little pastor by some of his uh, environment and you could tell that like you know there's still some writings from him back then and it's it's filled with the like just belief and faith in god yeah. and i think at some point he became like he was just so incredibly smart <laughs> so incredibly intelligent that he found out rather quickly that he, that that belief in God that he had was too weak for a criticism. So he started criticizing it sort of right away. Um, and the question is like, is that because of Christianity in general or, or is that because of his specific belief in Christianity at the time because of the Christianity that characterized the era that he was living in? Um, so then indeed, like he started, uh, he, well, I know I should keep this somewhat briefly, but he studied um, theology at first, but he didn't like theology, like for the aforementioned reasons. Um, so then he was he sort of put off all these ideas of wanting to become a pastor, and then he became a philologian. So philosophy is love of wisdom, philology is love of sort of the word. So he became very much interested in um, the etymology of words and re- reading a lot of classical stuff. So reading Plato and Aristotle, but more for them, for them philological aspects not so much the philosophical aspects which is why his first book was kind of a philological work but the main uh, philologists were like okay what is this guy on about like it seems so completely different than everything else so he got kind of got roasted in the reviews back then whereas even like now people think it's one of his his best or most interesting works like an early work but still like very interesting um so he was just like kind of shook and then he kind of didn't know what to do and i should also say like 
He was in the extraordinary position of being made a professor at the age of 24, which never happens to get a chair in professor. Like it's also partly related because they, they desperately needed a chair in professorship, but it shows something of his intelligence and promise that they were like, okay, clearly take this it. person deserves a professorship. What did you say? Sorry. Just take it. Take the yeah, chair. Just take it. Exactly. Amazing. Yeah. And yeah, he uh, continued writing his philosophical works, but also uh, having a very terrible health. So therefore, at some point, he um, he left the university. He was writing by himself. He um, where he could and he needed to travel in between places because of his ill health. He uh, sometimes the level of oxygen like or the air quality was better this time of year in the Swiss Alps. So then he would move there and then to the Italian mountains. So he would kind of be moving in between, which also kind of shows he, even though he was a German, he was never really at some point, like he just didn't feel German anymore. He was kind of just wandering around through Europe and living in different places and not really identifying with his German heritage anymore. Um, and I could say more, but like okay. obviously his philosophical works, but this is kind of him, the person. Yeah. And I should maybe, I can just end with the fact that in the latter part of his life, he had a mental collapse, um, the roots of which are heavily debated. Um, and that was in 1890, 1889, uh, and when he had a mental collapse in the streets of Turin. Uh, and he spent the last 10 years of his life, I think, in a mental asylum, first in Jena, and then I think he moved somewhere else. So kind of more or less, yeah, mentally insane, unfortunately. Uh, so very tragic ending to a very interesting life. Yeah. What about him sparked such an interest for you? Because you clearly, you spent so much time reading him. You spent your thesis uh, writing about him. Why? Why Nietzsche? Yeah, so it's interesting. So um, I should note that even during my bachelor's, I still thought of myself as an historian throughout most of the time. I was I first started looking for history masters. So I, you know, you come up with the idea for your thesis, like plenty in advance. So I actually wrote a thesis, a uh, historical thesis as part of the discipline of history, but which is, and I only took like the philosophy course much more in the end. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of too late. Like I did write like long papers in which I referenced a lot of Nietzsche uh, and then I could kind of tell, like, okay, he is very interesting to me. And I think that's because I felt he took the questions of um, religion, even though he was so critical of it, much more seriously than everyone I knew in my environment. So I guess I, I always felt a little bit misunderstood that, okay, you know, I have this Christian background, but then there's all these, these atheists around me, and then I have this uh, uh, atheist I guess I could call him an atheist, atheist professor. Um, and it seems in some ways, well, I shouldn't say that about the atheist professor, but at least about the environment, like they don't know what they're talking about when they're criticizing Christianity. Like they have no, no clue. And they also don't know the gravity of what they're talking about. So, so it's, it's not just that they, they don't get it intellectually, but also like, okay, you know, like you can tell that there's sometimes performative contradictions where they care about, the um, sovereignty of each individual and the individual rights but then they're like yeah but christianity that's kind of bullshit and obviously people don't have a soul and so and, and i found that very difficult that i could tell like okay i cannot really have a conversation with them because they're not taking their atheism to its logical conclusion but nietzsche was like nietzsche was very interested in, like 
what happens if we take atheism in its, to its logical conclusion? Yeah. Um, then I, I also find him very entertaining to read. Like he's very, I think he's very clear. Some people don't find that, but, and he's very funny. Uh, so it's, it's, it's also with great, he's very poetic. So it's, it's with great enthusiasm that I, I read his books as well. Yeah. yeah. I think that a lot of people, when they hear the name Nietzsche, they think about uh, the God is dead quote. So they think about him as maybe an atheist and they think about him as the father of of postmodernism. Mm-hmm. Um, I presume that you think both statements are kind of false. Um, or would you I say think both statements are true? <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, but like both are true, and like that's the thing. Like that's a tiny truth of Nietzsche. So I, I don't like people that reduce Nietzsche to one of the two statements. But both are true in some ways. But, in some ways, yeah. But maybe, maybe you should expand a little bit on your question because then I can answer more. Uh... Well, I think most people know him for this quote, like God is dead. And then, so basically yeah. the way, like if I think about my superficial understanding that I had before I read any of your work or um, anyone that ever had anything to say about Nietzsche, I was like, okay, so he kind of figured out <laughs> mm-hmm. that, that, that God doesn't exist, you know? Like right. someone's like, oh, the emperor wears no clothes yeah, type yeah. of deal. Whereas I think yeah. the, the situation is much more nuanced. And I think you also mentioned that he says, God is dead and we killed him. We yeah. all did. Yeah. And so what does that mean? What does it mean that we killed him? What does he mean by that? Yeah. So I think he is trying to, um, he's trying to point us much more in the direction of what does that mean that we are now actively killing God. And, and I think you would add to that, like the Christians that were at, at least like the intellectual sort of more um, upper sure. class Christians, you know, like the, so the, the intellectual Christians, they were also killing God in some ways. And that's, that's a tough statement. So he means like, okay, what does that mean? And, and why indeed did he not simply say something like God does not exist? Because that was normal at the time. Like there were several philosophers before him who had debated the existence of God, um, especially quite recently before him so people like Kant and Hume they'd all um, really come up with kind of interesting arguments against the existence of God but he was not interested in those arguments disproving God's existence but he did want to say that indeed we were killing God and therefore God is dead and God is dead means something like okay the, the societal influence that the idea of God is exerting has radically declined uh, and that's kind of interesting because the, that societal influence had been so stable for uh, a couple of thousand years. Surely it transforms, like the idea transforms. You can even see if you read the Bible that the idea of God sort of transforms from yeah. the Old Testament to the new one, which is not to say that one of them is less valuable. I'm just saying like it transforms clear, clearly. Um, but like the idea that there might be nothing in its place that is like okay so now god is dead so now what is like that is very scary so then then god is no longer transformed into something else it's just like well god just ceases to be of uh considerable influence like and what Mm. takes its place and you can kind of i think in that same quote he says like um who will wash away the blood you know that we have on our hands so it's like it's very serious and you can tell that like he is uh, crying and i think he, he he ends that passage like that you know the madman who cries out god is dead you know that he went uh sort of really tearfully and disappointed like throughout the churches and visited several churches and said like what are these if not just the tombs of god so he was just he was like very sad about this fact and also you know you can tell in that same passage 
you'd think that if it was just like some kind of atheist that he would be talking to like uh the christians would say like god is dead and that christians would be responding like no god is alive i love god you know and god is amazing but what's actually happening is that it says quite specifically um there were many of those standing around him that were not believing in god and they ridiculed him like oh where has god gone has he hide it like has he started hiding like a child so basically it's He's trying to say, at least in that passage, that it's the atheists that are not taking seriously what it would mean uh, would the influence of the idea of God radically fade away. So therefore, I think it is much more promising for uh, for this context and this little corner of the Internet to bring up someone like Nietzsche, because, you know, like you get to grapple with the idea, like how important is the idea of Christianity as opposed yeah. to indeed like, you know, a logical existence for a, a, a logical proof for God's existence or against it. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Cause I think Nietzsche could always be associated as well with trying to respond to the meaning crisis. I think, um, because if yeah. Vicky does speak about it, um, I think most people listening will probably be familiar with the meaning crisis, but it's, um, Mm-hmm. it speaks for itself basically what it means we have a crisis in in meaning people are depressed people are they lack meaning in their lives they feel like things don't matter as much and a lot of people think this is a consequence of um, looking at the world in a materialistic way in a mechanistic way we are simply specks in an infinite <laughs> sea of time let's say and reading your work on Nietzsche really does spike a lot of interest in me and I I think that he tried to answer the meaning crisis, but according to Verveke, from what I understand, he kind of doesn't offer a solution. Would you agree with that statement? I think he tries to prepare the way for offering a solution. And in that sense, I always kind of, I tend to disagree with takes of Peterson and also Verveke, uh, that seem to say that Nietzsche is already offering a solution because he's really saying like, okay, given the fact that we've seen that our ways of handling these questions of meaning have changed during history, then technically it should be possible for us to do so in the future again. But he's very clear that that's like in the future. He's not saying like, okay, so therefore I can now, you know, like something like Peterson says, like I can just create my own values. Like for him, it's an, um, like his main, his last final project was going to be called um, the Umwertung aller Werte. So that's like the, the it's the, how should I say it? It's often translated as the transvaluation of all values because some it's it's originally been translated as the revaluation of all values. So that sounds like, okay, we're just going to revalue it. But transvaluation is already closer to what it means. It's like in Dutch, you would say umwardering. So it's like, you know, we appreciate these values in a certain way. We we value them in a kind of way. And he's saying like, yeah, we have to work with that, but we need to sort of try to kind of transvalue it, umwardere, like in a certain direction, because he knew that you can't just simply like, okay, let's just give a new meaning to it. Like that's way too simple. And that's, um, so I'd say like, he is much more interested in preparing the way for a possible response. And that might still be lacking. So, you know, like it, it, it might still have its problems, but he was, I think not yet able to respond adequately to the mean crisis in his time. Yeah. Do you think he I'm did? Sure that answers your question. Well, do you think he did pave the way for something? And is that something now already ready to be here? Or do you think it's, do you think he shouldn't have tried at all? Do you think that 
that's kind of an illusion that you can fix it in this way what what do you think yourself i think what's uh, one of his main contributions is certainly that he emphasized the psychological aspect so that means that he's much more interested like okay super nice this very conscious narrative that you might have running on you know either the balance or imbalance of the world but sort of what is actually going on deep down and how are you actually really living your life and what does that say about you are you are you actually living a healthy life in some ways um, and by doing that he shifted the discussion away from purely rational argumentation uh you know like okay your argument is better than mine so therefore i guess you're right and much more into like okay let's see how these actually sort of play out and i think that's very useful because that paves the way for people like freud and people like jung eventually and then people like peterson and verveke like who are then able to uh, sort of say like okay what is actually going on what's actually happening if we look at someone's whole being as opposed to simply um, as opposed to simply what they say they think you know so I think in that sense he is very in a very useful manner providing um, a ways of understanding meaninglessness that goes far deeper than simply the statement oh you know uh nothing exists or everything is meaningless he's more interested in, okay what does that mean does that lead to a positive vibrant existence or does that lead to a negative totalitarianism or to indeed a nihilism that is very destructive and can lead to suicide so he's very interested in like where would beliefs lead you eventually um and i'd also say that like there are some hints of this in his work is that uh there's yeah there's a hypothesis that Precisely like that he criticized Christianity so much um, precisely to strengthen it. And I think that's kind of some one of the elements in my thesis, because he really believed that Christianity had become pathetic. And there is this there's just this, this these thoughts that he's playing with, like maybe, you know, if we challenge it so much, it will have the chance to become strong again. Um, so in that sense, I also think he paved the way because I think like, you know, like and you know this of yourself. We all know this is like, you know, if we want to improve a part of ourselves we need to let another part of ourselves die and he seemed to have tried that to christianity he took it to a whole new level that was not tried to that same extent before so uh it wasn't a whole wholly different way than other arguments against christianity so they might be useful after all so i don't know if that's an answer again. oh it's a great answer i really like it i like also that you mentioned the, the propositional that of course it's more than that and i think maybe that of course would not have been such an of course without this man and his yeah. work because I do think it's a it's a simple yet revelatory discovery. Let's say. For sure. All right. So uh, I think that... maybe 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 add one yeah, more. Go thing. ahead. Go ahead. I was just thinking. Uh, I still want to grant um, someone like Verveke, like that. You know, he's criticizing some of these movements of the time and romanticism that you know they try to get the irrational and they do that through art which is nice but it's purely sort of it's just sort of an escapism and it's not really grounded in self-improvement it's not grounded in communal activities and that definitely does characterize Nietzsche is that he was he was very lonely he did not have um sort of um I'm not sure what the right word is but he did not have an ecology of practices that he could put this into so he had the right criticism and could criticize the, the right problems but he found it very difficult to be constructive. And even if he was, that was like kind of there were glimmers of being constructive um, because he, he didn't have the 
accompanying practices though i would say like he was also a musician and i think that really helped him a lot and his writing helped him a lot that was a creative output for him but it's hard to see if you know if there could be a creative output for a whole society though as you might have read in my work i do argue that he's also interested in what drives society and what what is the role of myth for society you know and how can you have uh, religions that might characterize um a healthy society so he's not just interested in this sort of individualism but that's just an addition that i want to say just to kind of grant that it's fair criticism yeah amazing i think that one thing that he says that also i've seen a lot being said nowadays is that you cannot not believe propositionally in a story and still pluck the fruits of the values it engenders so practically that means for christianity that if you do not believe in the existence of of Christ and the resurrection, then the values that you, the Christian values that you've adopted, they're gonna fade away as well. Um, yeah, no, that, that, that's correct. Why is that? Could you could you elaborate? Because I I read it and I understand it because I see it happening in real time. But why do you have to? This would also be an atheist, like a question that atheists would have. Like why why would you need to buy a story? Um, to get the values can can't you just get the values uh, this is a bit harder to say I, I don't think he does seem to allude to the fact that you know what is happening here is this works on the level of symbolism and that has a whole different function than the level of argument or just the level of assertion and he seems to argue this against sort of the sciencey atheist types of his time is like okay you know if you really want to criticize christianity like do it properly indeed like actually formulate something else but if you're doing this you're not realizing that you're kind of you know you're um as is often said like you're you're sewing off like the the branch on which you're sitting and therefore you're, you're gonna fall down and i think what i find very interesting and, and this is much more in the form of his arguments than in the content but it can probably be found in his content if you look carefully um, he is quite the mythical writer himself. So he, when he was thinking about, okay, I'm going to provide maybe a response to what's going on, he wrote Thus Spoke Zarathustra, which is almost like, which is very, um, I should say it, purposefully written in the style of sort of the, in the Lutheran style, uh, Lutheran translation of, of the Bible. And you can tell that it's filled with images of like, snakes and lions and and camels so like you have all these images going on of the, the the rope walker going in the cave and going out of the cave so it's filled with these images because i think he knew very well like that's eventually what it would take like it's it's not about like people don't work as rational mach machines people um and and if they do like they're actually full of contradictions so eventually they'll find out that their love for the truth is itself based on a sort of lie in and consequently, they will no longer love the truth anymore because it's no longer truthful to love the truth. So it's very interesting where that will lead you. And he was much more interested, like, okay, how do these... Um, so indeed, like the form of Thus Spoke Zarathustra shows that he is much more interested in this sort of mytho-poeticism to really convey his ideas in a much stronger way. And I'd also say that, you know, when he criticizes traditions, he takes an individual. So like, so for instance, you have the religion of zoroastrianism but he's much more interested in zarathustra or you have the greek religions but he's interested in dionysus or apollo uh 
he criticizes Plato and not so much Platonism. So like, or he criticizes Socrates saying like, you know, Socrates was ugly and that's, that's relevant for him. The, the fact that Socrates was ugly is already an argument in some ways that Socrates needed to counterbalance. And my point is like, Nietzsche is saying like, it's very relevant to look at people's lives and to look at themselves because that's how we work. We can't just treat people as sort of disembodied um, systems of thought. We're always embodied. So He's just saying like that's the that's the nature of reality, and therefore you need to sort of respond to it in this manner. Again, I'm not sure if that's an answer to your question, but I don't know if it was an answer, but it was very interesting. So I really don't I don't mind, and it brings up some ideas for me as well, um, because I want to kind of keep it centered on you. Over the years, you've read his work, and were there times where you agreed with everything he said, and are there not time? Like, do you still agree with everything he said? Do you have disagreements? Could you speak mm -hmm. a bit about, about that? Because I think that's something that can happen when you find a thinker, let's say, you're like, wow, this is so, like, everything makes sense. And especially someone that you spend so much time on, yeah. I can imagine you were completely, right. so yeah. Yeah, I think, like, uh, I think we all, we all have impression of this, like, at the start, like, when we really get into the flow state of appreciating a new perspective, uh, we start looking at the world in that way. And that's really what happened to me when discovering him. It's kind of funny, like when you first discover him, you're very, <laughs> you're very superficially, like you're saying like, hey, he's pretty cool, but you know, then he says some pretty nasty stuff about women. So therefore, you know, you don't take that. And then all of a sudden you get so immediately, so incredibly into the flow stage that you're like, oh my God, shit, even the stuff he says about women, like it has, it has a point to it, you know? And then later you get out of that flow state and you're like, okay, wait, he's just kind of screwing around there. So you kind of, um, and it's, it's hard to say where you, I, I, like I think Verwege also mentioned that it's very difficult to disagree with Nietzsche because he disagrees with himself all the time. Um, and I would say where I, really where in the end i disagree is 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 the power of or maybe the the understanding that someone like girard uh, later had and i think i i include him in in the the thesis that that that, that you've read is that self-sacrifice and sacrifice like nietzsche also recognized that sacrifice was essential to the way humans live but nietzsche did not fully see that self-sacrifice which was indeed introduced sort of by this um, judeo-christian understanding of the way the world works that that is now also inevitable so that indeed we now no longer really live in a world in which we can just blindly sacrifice and pretend like you know these people are clearly guilty so therefore they should be sacrificed no because it's so built into our uh, understanding our language our art now that we constantly are reminded even if not at the time that later on we see like oh shit those people are actually innocent those people that we sacrificed and this is something that obviously pained him a great deal because you can see that that can lead to martyrdom that people are like oh you know uh, just sacrifice me like i'm okay with being weak i don't mind not strengthening myself and so he was concerned about that because he thought it could lead to a certain type of unhealthy behavior. But at the same time, I don't think he fully saw the extent to which it was necessary to make it a part of your own life. So like really the reason where, the, the way where I disagree is, is, is in his final years when he wasn't able to provide a proper um, synthesis of these two opposites, which was indeed the sort of the Dionysian uh, 
glorious suffering, uh, wine drinking, um, hedonistic, but you know, also indeed aggressive and sexual and violent kind of way of orienting yourself through life, as opposed to sort of the Christian, which was uh, for him associated with more asceticism and much more um, intellectualism, because I argue in my work that Christianity had been sort of interwoven, uh, intertwined with Socratism, which was sort of the intellectual part that kind of came up. Um, and sort of now trying try to get back to your question is, I think he was like those became so irreconcilable for him, but he knew that that part was part of him, that he ended up denying himself. And he makes that explicit. Like he says, self-denier, like self-knower. And, and and he, so he, he was aware of that, but he couldn't deal with it. So I think my criticism is much more indeed with, like obviously I have superficial criticisms, like, okay, I think it's quite ridiculous sometimes or quite offensive, the stuff that he says about certain groups of people. Uh, I think sometimes his criticism is a bit, you know, it's funny, but it's not actually hitting the mark. I think his criticism of Plato is very simplistic in some ways because he treats it as a system of ideas as much and much less as an embodied philosophy. Um, but I mean, having said all that, I also know what he's trying to do. Like I, he's trying to sort of get you out of your sort of modal seriousness and really like um, change your understanding. So I don't take him too seriously there, but where I do take him seriously is the way in which he lived his own life, which in many ways I can respect, but also see where it inevitably had a downfall at the end which led to his own, which at least contributed, let me put it that way, to his own mental collapse. And there I would have liked to have seen um, a stronger effort to synthesize as opposed to indeed keep them so separate and be constantly so tense, you know, in between those two opposites, yeah. Thank you, thank you for answering. I think it's very enlightening. And I do see a lot of that, uh, the disagreements with himself. I think that may, may also be what's so appealing about him. Because I think it's very easy to dismiss someone when um, you can clearly see like, okay, this is this is pretty simple. Like sometimes I feel like we define philosophers based on what they got wrong. And I think maybe that that can be a, a strength of his. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. And, and I mean, like maybe some people were surprised for instance that I did not disagree, didn't say disagreement with anti-Semitism, but I just want to say like, okay, I don't, I don't address that because he wasn't an anti-Semite. Like he was very much against anti-Semitism. So I like, I, I'm not talking about the more superficial stuff. Yeah. And if you do want to talk about that, like we, we can talk about no, that. No, no, that's all right. Very much against anti-Semites in his time. Yeah. So, but that's another story. Oh, of course. So given the time, we'll skip the father of postmodernism question because I want to keep it a bit more personal because we've just been speaking about this, this philosopher and he was not a Christian. And somehow, some way, you got here in this little corner. And yeah. I think you can call yourself a Christian. So how on earth did you read this philosopher, see a lot of what he has to say, and still you're able to go to church at times? Well, I should say exactly. Like, I don't, I don't go to church. So, I mean, not on principle. I just, I'm not going to church at the moment. Um I think, well, first of all, I should say I'm really not, I'm not um, uh, unique in this. So I, so actually the main, uh, the philosophe des Vaderland, so uh, the main philosopher, I should say, temporarily of the, of the Netherlands, 
public philosopher, though I mean he is an academic philosopher, is Paul van Tongeren, and he is also uh, a Catholic Nietzschean. Let me put it that way. So like he's a he's a Nietzsche supporter, and he also goes to church. Another supporter, but a Nietzsche scholar, I should say at least. Um, but to answer it more personally for myself, I think that what I found rather because I felt like it was such an honest to me it felt an, as an honest an, an engagement with Christianity at least honest in the sense that okay you know it's like um, let's say you're watching South Park and South Park makes fun of everything like South Park in the good old days uh, and you know that therefore it will also make fun of you at some point and then you kind of know that you're then again the, and so therefore you can also respect South Park because you don't feel like they're picking on you specifically they're picking on everything and in that same sense I felt that Nietzsche was doing that, that he was kind of almost picking on everything. Um, so therefore, I can respect his criticisms of, of Christianity, even though like they go deeper than most things that he Christ, uh, uh, criticizes, though there are definitely some strong contenders. Um, and so therefore, I respect the criticism. And I could see also that that was precisely the type of criticism that... I needed to throw against my own understanding of Christianity in order to be able to respect it again. Um, and I think, I believe you've uh, interviewed our uh, father recently, uh, who is, I think, a little bit, like, I think it's not controversial if I say that throughout his life, he's felt like there was never a time that he was as close to leaving the faith as either you or I have been, let me put it that way. So he was much stronger in his in his faith um and i can say that you know and like I th I th he's aware of this so it's not uh it's not, it's not strange if i say this but like i found sometimes like the way in which he discussed christianity even though i appreciate it now but to be a, a, bit, a little bit soft so it's like the focus on love and how important that is and, and loving one another and how and the power of loving one another and i, I think that's all great but i knew that like that the way in which love can also work is that it can it can mask um an underlying incentive that can be more perverse so i mean this has often been discussed you know that like that, that people say that uh yeah okay people might love the oppressed like out of compassion for the oppressed but maybe you know they're actually resentful towards people that are more powerful and that kind of idea that really started um at least Nietzsche really popularized that analysis to say like, okay, are you actually compassionate towards other people or are you secretly like deep down a little bit resentful of people who are more powerful than you are? Um, and I could feel some of that sometimes a little bit like, and obviously to uh, defend my dad's understanding of Christianity and Christianity itself, I can now tell that at the core, it's not, um, it's not characterized by that. But I also know that there's a strong outgrowth of Christianity, which very much is characterized by that. And me being much younger, Christianity was like this fake blurb of like, I didn't understand exactly what it was. Um, but then to really add this criticism to it, I could see like, ah, so that is actually unhealthy Christianity in some ways. And now I can start to look at what might then be a healthy criterion or set of criteria for um for uh for christianity in order to um to thrive as an individual as a collective within it um and i should also add maybe that 
one fascinating thing is that Nietzsche was just so influential that he sparked all these people that responded to him. So you have Girard, you have Heidegger, you have Jung, uh, also Foucault, and um, but but and Nishitani, uh, and they all responded in a very interesting way to his arguments, and that also allows for you at least, and so I could speak of myself to keep it more personal, like of really enjoying Nietzsche's ideas, but also finding it maybe even more entertaining to do that while also looking at the criticism of his ideas. And then you have a more whole sort of holistic understanding of Nietzsche and his extent. Um, and maybe on a more uh, commonsensical level is like when I first started to, <laughs> to look into Nietzsche, I read some of his works and then, uh, you know, I mean, I'm not technically of the Zoomer generation, but I uh, do uh, live on the internet part of my life, unfortunately. And I looked up some lectures about him. And one of the lectures that passed by was a lecture by this psychologist, uh, Jordan Peterson. And it's so funny because if I would have found that lecture now, I would have probably been much more critical of it. I would have been like, okay, well, that's a bit simplistic. I'm not sure if that's right. But at the time, he characterized something of Nietzsche, which is very important to me, which is exactly like, okay, well, maybe in his saying uh, the death of God, like he's much more mournful and he's not celebrating it. Um, and I could kind of see how incorporating this Nietzschean criticism could actually be useful towards this healthy understanding of the positive aspects and function of Christianity. So that's like kind of like an abstract answer, but maybe you want to be more specific. Do you have any follow-ups or... Well, I just have this image in my head of someone that well, you were in the class and you have your professor and you have the people around you and they're kind mm -hmm. of like like this and this you started playing devil's advocate, like you say, and it evolved more and more. And I think it's quite a big step to then say, hey, I am actually a Christian and I can embrace that identity. Yeah. And I just well, wonder how how does one yeah. take that leap? I, uh, I will be honest, like I still find it difficult to embrace that identity. I do because I do in the, I certainly do in the superficial sense because it's my background. So I embrace it for that reason alone. But because I'm so interested in philosophy and that's why I find people like uh, Kierkegaard also very interesting and fascinating. It's like, I feel my, I feel sometimes a little bit torn between my interest for philosophy and my uh, love for religion and so I'm not sure if I've ever taken the hardcore leap, which is also why indeed I said, like, I'm not actually going to church. Uh, I don't uh, pray on a regular basis. And um, that's stuff that might be in the future for me. But I'm also keeping that open because I'm genuinely curious about what's possible. But I want to be very honest about about a part of me which is christian like it's, it's in my background like that that's sort of how i was raised so i i don't feel like denying that um but still to maybe answer your question a bit more in the direction that you're interested in is i think my um i could say that my interest in philosophy was characterized by this love of truth but really truth in the not just the propositional sense but actually yeah in the way that someone like Jesus might say, like, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, that truth is like, can be embodied and can be a living philosophy. So trying to understand what is truth then. And then I'd say that for me, that 
uh, search for the truth first led me to deny my Christianity because it was like, okay, so now I see that such a thing as a man with a beard in the sky, I'm not sure if I actually ever had this idea of God, but let's say that I did, you know, like when I was much younger. Um, that didn't seem sensical to me anymore. So therefore my my uh, my quest for truth first uh, led up to me denying Christianity. But then continuing that, you see that, okay, if you then continue on your quest for truth, you start seeing the problems with the alternative, which would be um, materialism, often accompanied by a sense of nihilism and meaninglessness. And then it's not just that that is undesirable from a psychological end, but also that it's it seems incoherent from a metaphysical front. And you and I have spoken about Bernardo Kastrup. I think he's very good at laying out the contradictions inherent and intrinsic to materialism. So then you kind of keep looking at the truth and then you're like, okay, wait, actually the truth in this broad sense, in this, um, I know that Peterson calls that pragmatic sense, but, but I... I don't even want to reduce to that, uh, can then lead you back to like, okay, well, maybe truth actually involves this mythical understanding, this symbolic understanding, even though on the surface that seems, those seem like, those might sometimes seem like untruths. Uh, but then when you go deeper, you actually see like, okay, but that's that, that's that's my life, you know, like that indeed on the surface, they were untruth. So I denied them. And then I like I look deeper and I sort of found them again, but more in this more profound sense. And there were I was able to. Um, yeah. And it's the story that still makes most sense to me. And I see it reflected everywhere around me. Uh, and I don't I don't I, I know that some people might do, but I don't recognize myself in the pre-Christian world. Like if I if I really look there I, I really see a profoundly different kind of uh human being and that's not to say that i don't have compassion for them like i do it's just like that i'm like i i cannot pretend to actually understand the world the way in which they did and i found myself much more closely aligned with the way in which the christian or post-christian world looks at, at things and the post-christian world at the moment is still fairly christian <laughs> so post-christian might even be a wrong term but again i'm not sure if that answers your question <laughs> i think it largely does i think that also what i'm trying to get at is if you think that christianity suffices as an answer because i know that you're saying like i'm still staying open to things i know you've tried for fakies practices ecology yeah. of practices you've given exactly. that a go with some of your uh some of your friends like how do you think about answers to the meaning crisis because i think of course like i said nietzsche has been thinking about this hmm. what, what do you think well i thought like um i stumbled upon this video of um, jonathan peugeot uh, answering the question like why hasn't jordan peterson converted to orthodoxy and then he said something like uh like uh yeah i mean i just decided to leave this issue up to god because i tried to do what i can you know like i've given him all these hints but at some point I just said like, God, this is, this is all you now. I'm like, use him <laughs> like to what you think is, is his purpose. You know, uh, obviously I do not mean to equate myself in such a way, but I am still trying to feel uh, what exactly my purpose here is. And I'm not yet sure if my purpose, I, I have a strong hunch that I'll end up there, but I'm not 100% sure that I'll end up uh, in a Christian in a Christian world, talking to Christians, I'm at the moment really happy being in this in between space, talking to Christians and non Christians. 
So, and therefore also I, I want to do that in a genuine and authentic way, like actually in a way that I think is, um, in which I take a lot of inspiration from someone like John Fervecki, because I think that's where the reach is right now. And I also believe that, and I've, I've actually, I've talked to someone about this yesterday, um, that I think it's far more necessary for people who do not have a Christian background at all to at least have to include this dimension in their lives. And that does not have to be explicitly Christian, but it does need to involve much of the elements that are implicit in a Christian way of living. Um, so therefore I'm more interested also in talking to them and also just like for the blunt fact that most of my friends are unbelievers. So like I found, I find myself and the Netherlands is a very secularized country. So I find myself in a non-Christian environment and I find this corner very valuable, but I do also want to be authentic to my surrounding. Yeah. <laughs> That's very good. I didn't know that, that you had these, I don't, I don't know if I should call them doubts, but that you're still figuring it out because I never thought about you as a Peterson in between space. Um, so that's actually very interesting to hear. Well, like I'm not a, I'm not a scientific person. I, I, I wouldn't say he's a scientific person, but he is definitely scientific. And I'd say that like, I'm at least I'm nowhere near atheism. Let me put it that yes, way. Yes, yes, yes. Like, okay. I'm, I'm far closer to Christianity than I, than I am to atheism. Like I, I really believe in the primacy of consciousness in a certain way that cannot be denied. And that already puts me far more, far closer to kind of the spiritual understanding of the world. So I'm just saying it's not specifically characterized by, well, it is very specifically characterized in the way in which I talk, the stories which I like and what really uh, makes me emotionally engaged so in that sense i'm through and through i'm christian yeah but i will say that i i love the greeks and i love the greek heritage which is unchristian which oh, at least it's pre-christian but then i also love um the way in which the, for instance the early church fathers were finding inspiration in the works of plato and the neoplatonists so there's also a ways of bridging those of course. Like, I, I don't they have to be like separate in that sense. yeah i think they were all schooled in uh in plato yeah the early church fathers, like it was I mean, the education. Ask our dad, but it, some would say that someone like Paul was also schooled in Platonic thought. Yeah, I so. think you mentioned that in your work as well. Um, okay, great. You talked a bit about stories. I want to get it a bit more personal. What what story really speaks to you? So it can be like it doesn't have to be um, a book. It can also be a movie. Like I'm wondering where do you where do you find a lot of beauty? Like what story? Those can be two separate questions, but you mean in which stories I find a lot of beauty? Yeah, you can right. name one. Like, like, do you have a favorite story outside of the story of Christ? I think, um, like, uh, my my partner also knows this. Like, uh, we've watched the uh, Lord Lord of the Rings together, so I like Tolkien's works a lot. Um, but I'll also be honest. Like, I've 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 only discovered avid reading <laughs> someone more recently, like, you know, like recently, I'm just saying like later on in my life. So I was never like a bookworm that I uh, read a lot of books when I was younger. So I didn't read these books when I was, when I was younger. And I would say I, what, what else might I add? I, I, th I think that that's, that's a good answer for now. Lord of the, Lord of the Rings. Rings. There's more. I, you know, that I really love stories and I love good, 
good books. Um, but I like how they sort of are able to supplement one another. And I think the nice thing about something like Lord of the Rings is that it has, it has everything. So uh, like, I think maybe you even brought this up or my, my dad brought this up with you in conversation. Uh, it's like the Christian, uh, Christopher Booker, he wrote on the, the seven great stories, something like that. I kind of forgot. Uh, Christopher Booker, I think is his name. And he says like stories are characterized by one of these types of stories. And he says like, but there's only one story that he can think of that has all of them. That's the Lord of the Rings. So it has all those elements. So it's just very powerful. Um, yeah. And it's also Christian, <laughs> but that, that's a byproduct. Yeah. Interesting. I, I heard once that Tolkien himself tried to deny this a little bit because hmm. I had a friend of mine. He was very much atheistic speaking yeah. about how he actually is just a blob of matter and uh <laughs> And he was speaking about Tolkien. He's like, yeah, he himself didn't even embrace that. But I think that some of these these artists, they don't know it, but it's still so heavily influenced that you almost can't deny the the. Link. I'm curious to, to to see what he was talking about then. Like maybe sure. he said, Tolkien said something to the extent of like it wasn't just a Christian story, but yeah, uh, it's quite clear that uh, it's filled with Christian influence. That Tolkien was a Tolkien was a religious individual, so. Okay, yeah. thank but, you. Uh, <laughs> do you think you are right now? You're doing what you were made to do. Mm. I think I'm still discovering that, but I am also not way off track. <laughs> You're teaching so philosophy I, now, as yeah. a you, you like this, you enjoy this. Yeah, I like it a lot. Yeah, it's uh, I I think it's an uh, it's an honor in some ways to be the, how should I say it, the vessel for ideas and insights of people that are far wiser than us for like, uh, and that's been the past 3000 years. That's mm. amazing that, that you get to. So, which is, and it's, it's, it's both, uh, uh, I should say it, it works in both ways because you can feel somewhat uh, satisfied with yourself if you do a successful explanation of something but you're also immediately humbled because you're aware like these are not my ideas so sometimes you see this spark in these uh, in the eyes of a student and that's really useful but then you could also tell like okay so i i communicated it successfully so i did my part but also the idea landed in their mm. in their minds you know so yeah that's beautiful now it's yeah. a little bit of a a little bit of a Lex Friedman on you. I'm not going to ask what's the meaning of life, but I'm going to ask what gives you meaning in life. Because I remember <laughs> he asked for vacant. He was like, this is not a good question. So yeah. what what brings you meaning in life? Um, I'd say I'm really interested in uh, in collective flow states but even that sounds a little bit fetishizing like oh you know just looking uh let's 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 all do drugs together and get into a, co a collective flow state like but i do mean it in the sense that it's that at the same time it's ethically and personally transformative and i would also say that part of it is really recognition so i want 
and at least that, that that's what I've noticed in my own life. Like I, I find a lot of meaning when I feel recognized and seen. But the irony of that is that I don't want to be just recognized and as uh, or seen as who I am, but also you know like what's underlying that. So like let's say the common humanity. So when you have when you're entering through collective flow with someone else you both see them in their individuality and in the thing that binds you together and that's really the part that i would say gives a lot of meaning um to my life but it's also indeed at least over the last few years and that's like it's really related to this it's, it's trying to find to find it outside of your own um narrow-minded interests and really try to see okay how can I find meaning? Like I know that Peterson says something like, you know, by taking up responsibility and that can certainly be a very useful way. Um, but even, even there, like it's, it, it has to be related to like, okay, to the question surrounded, like what is my goal here and how can I constantly be attentive to that? So I guess it's the combination of, of, I really like the word attention. I know that Peugeot used it a lot, but I've also been reading Simone Weil over the last few days. And uh, she's a early 20th century mystic also anarchist <laughs> uh, and she also used the, the concept of attention a lot and i think attention is wonderful especially because like she's french so you have uh, that's the double meaning of attention so it's both waiting for god and like attention attending to god kind of um and i really like that notion because it has this because if you're properly attentive to someone you really see them as who they are you know so like you're recognizing them and at the same time, you're also patient. So you're not trying to impose or project what you think on top of that. So I would say maybe in proper attention, which is then bound up with recognition, which is then bound up with personal transformation and kind of a deep love and beauty and goodness that you find and truth that you find shining through it. Um, yeah, that's a little bit of an answer to that. <laughs> you see them in that moment for what they truly are. Because I feel... When I have these uh, these moments that you're describing, I feel like they're unfolding. You know, it's like you see mm -hmm. this depth to people. I I I I'd never really experienced that before. Um, like it started a couple of years ago, mm -hmm. where you, sometimes you just speak to a person and you let them speak and you bring out the best in them and you see this spark in their eyes and it's just wow. That's not like it. Almost feels like it. It it points beyond themselves yeah, let's say that i think that's a really nice way of putting it uh, and that's kind of what i mean like that pointing beyond that's what i mean with okay i don't want them just to see me who i am but also precisely <laughs> that part which is not me which binds together but therefore is also more profoundly me so it's kind of you know what i mean like yeah. But it's not just me. It's like, but without it, I couldn't even be me. So it's it's very that's interesting. Beautiful. You know, so I, that's a lovely way of putting it. Like that, it 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 seems to shine, like beyond themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and what about music? I didn't hear music in there. Is it not as? Um, hmm. Does it not come up as quickly for you, or is it not something you were thinking about? Because when I see you play music, last week I saw Aaron perform. Yeah, and I was there with my girlfriend as well, and she was so happy to see you, <laughs> see you play music. It's like, wow, this is really something. It's like it's kind of like he's made made to do this, you know. <laughs> do you, do you feel that? Do do you feel yeah. the meaning there as well, or? 
Yeah, I think so. I think so. Like it's um, it's a little bit less than it used to be. And and I think um, so one very famous popular book is uh, The Second Mountain by David Brooks. And he argues like he's just kind of used this image like, you know, the first mountain is where you go for personal success. Uh, and that works for most of us. That's how we think about, you know, what should I study and what kind of career should I have? But then at some point in our life, we realize that has kind of probably not been successful. Or even if we succeed, we find that it's not all there is to life. And then we start climbing our second mountain, which is more about I need self-sacrifice and communal living. Um, and I think one of the reasons why I find this topic a little bit more difficult is because for me, that's associated a lot with my first mountain you know it's kind of like oh yeah it's like Aaron the artist who is gonna make a big name for himself and write his own songs and hopefully get lots of compliments for people of people like of how talented I am um, so I still really like it but I, I'm also aware of kind of also the way in which someone like Peugeot uh, makes uh, orthodox icons that you can kind of tell like it should ser serve something and obviously I was happy like I can also see that in that performance, I'm hopefully also giving people a nice afternoon and like setting a nice, nice vibe and inspiring them through art. Like the world needs artists, you know, um, but I don't. Yeah. The reason why I haven't brought it up as much is because I have a kind of on and off relationship with it that I sometimes associate a little bit too much with my first I mountain see. of success. But at the same time, music like is also, you know, that besides playing it, like it's one of my biggest hobbies to constantly discover new music and to do like music from the past and music from today. And, and I really think of music as in some sense, the language of the universe and uh, the way in which, you know, like you have harmonies and you have, you have the rhythm and you have patterns going on and, and uh, melodies, like and they all seem to sort of um, coincide in a way. And music is a wonderful way of showing of showing that everyone like at their core is still very much religious, you know, like, because everyone, like, it's so difficult to not be moved by music. And I'm like, maybe that's one of the things that kept me spiritual for all this time is like that. I, that I never could think of music as something like, Oh, you know, it's just a byproduct, you know, like uh, human beings, like they like sugar and like, they like music. It's very strange, but it's like, no, no, I, I really see it as something far more fundamental. And that in some ways, like, you know, you can have, semi-spiritual ex uh, experiences or not semi-spiritual you can they can also be properly spiritual when listening to music so there's something extraordinary going on so yeah. in that sense music plays a, a huge part of my life yeah for sure thank you for explaining that i think the most beautiful song to me that you've ever played was also more part of the the second mountain mm. uh it's the one you played that was about our grandmother uh, mm -hmm. it. which actually i really want you to send me the do you have a recording because i yeah, i really want to it's a it's a song i listen to it and i just cry instantly and i think that there aren't many people that that would say that music doesn't have meaning inherent like you mm -hmm. can't you can't find people that don't have a song where it's like that's really meaningful and i think it's also really what explains the obsession with concerts let's say Mm -hmm. like it's worship yeah i think you're right i think you're right and th that's that's also the dangerous part of it which is also why you know at some point when i was into music i was into a lot of popular music and i still am but i don't feel like but then i also felt like going to the concerts and all that and now i can kind of see like i'm not sure i I would like it when you know like they're 
kind of less well known and you can kind of really have a communal feeling when going to the concert but otherwise it becomes like very quickly like they're so big uh you may even with someone like peterson you know like it's like it's become so big that becomes kind of well now worship might be a big word but afraid that it has that uh mention to it yeah yeah it's because we were talking about uh going to see one of the little thinkers that we follow and you mentioned peterson and also you proposed Gastrup or maybe McGilchrist. And Peterson came up like last minute and we ended up going to Peterson. But I remember telling you like, it feels a bit like a cult. <laughs> yeah. Even you know, like, I, uh, it's a it, bit... But also like, they're so different, right? Like all the people yes, there yes. are so incredibly it's different true. from one another. So that's, so at the same time that it feels a cult, you feel like all of them are like profoundly disconnected and also in a negative sense, you can kind of tell like, what the fuck are these people, you know, like they're just kind of like uh, connecting uh, to one another, like yeah. and, and just going home and not really talking to one another anymore and just kind of going back to their YouTube holes and, you know. <laughs> it's really so, how it felt, like people just emerged yeah. from their <laughs> from their little basements. Yeah. But no, I was actually surprised, like the demographic wasn't that bad. Like it wasn't <laughs> just incels, you know? No, no, that's correct. Oh, um, Okay. So, Aaron, do you fear death? Mm. Mm, barely. I don't think so. Like, I, I rarely have this moment of actually fearing death. But then, like, sometimes uh, I remember, like, when I was, for instance, like, when you have a really bad fever or something like that. And then sometimes, you know, you, you um, or like, or a very bad case of the flu and you start coughing and you cough so much that you're like, you're barely able to breathe. And then you have this moment of like, wait, am I going to die? Especially when you're, when it's like at night and you are like half dreaming. Oh half yeah. Asleep. That sleepy self is completely yeah. just irrational. Yeah. Exactly. You know, it's so, so dangerous. Yeah. My so sleepy like, self so is a like, monster. Yeah. Yeah. So exactly. So then you're almost like, okay, shit, am I going to die now? So there's this, um, tendency there but at the same time like i i do not i i have enough mm, i have enough of a, an inclination uh or an intimation that like that either you know life does not cease to be after we die it will transform uh, because of this weird nature of consciousness or it will cease to be and then it's irrational to fear it and like and then obviously then part of the possibilities uh, as someone could present the criticism like okay well you could also go to hell it's like that's true so i'm trying to to be in heaven while on earth to uh make <laughs> like a safe passage let's say uh, which is not to like and uh, maybe people will misunderstand that when i say that but i i mean it in the properly symbolic sense i understand what you mean yeah uh, and i also like i don't know like there's part of it um I, I, it just doesn't show up as a fear for me it's kind of strange though i am at the same time aware that as things are getting more serious between me and my girlfriend like i want to be there for her like i could tell like you know we're building up something here and we're we're dreaming of a family at uh, at some point and and of of marriage and really creating something together so i i much more mourn that which would be lost then as opposed to the actual process of dying itself though it's hard to say because maybe that will return once 
I'll be dead sick at some point again. Yeah. So I think you'll also really be in the body, you know. Yeah. Like it's very hard to realize your soul, your spirit when you you're in sickness. Yeah. Which I think why it makes it that much more admirable that people in those situations sometimes still transcend yeah. their pain. Yeah. No, absolutely. I I remembered um when I was single and not in a relationship, not a lot of connections, not a lot of friends. I really felt like I could die and would really be okay. And now I'm like, no, you can't. <laughs> I'm going through that red light all the time. Like you really can't. It's a responsibility almost to be a bit more cautious. Um, yeah, I see what you I mean. Feel what you mean. <laughs> I, I, I might have something similar that you just like that. I had these moments like I could die now and it would be okay. And then later on you realize that was actually really selfish so strange like that 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 thought yeah, actually. of like being able to live in a happy death like that's actually a very selfish thought even though you think like wow it's so selfless because i don't care about dying it's like well maybe that's selfish you know maybe you should think about who yeah. you'd hurt when you would die so yeah <laughs> yeah maybe it was <laughs> no, I mean like that, that, that's just what it feels like for me that like that I wasn't properly. Yeah, and no, like, absolutely. If if I can op open up and, and, and like uh, a bit more vulnerable, like I've I've also gone through a t time of my life in which I was not so happy. Um, I wouldn't say I'm like crazy happy now, but I can definitely not complain. And at that time, I I really like well, yeah, I was going through a nihilistic time and uh, feeling fairly depressed and. I mean, I never got close to it, but then when you think about, you know, would it really be so bad if I wasn't alive? So you, you start thinking those things. And I think honestly, like that, yeah, you know, you start running through like people in the family, you know, like, okay, I think my parents, like, obviously they would be devastated, but they could manage, you know, and I, like, and I think I went all the way up to like something, someone like uh, our youngest brother, Isaac, where I was really like, Oh, man I can't do that to him you know like that's just awful and that's really so so I should have stopped at the first question you know the, like realize like uh, obviously it would be super selfish and it would be hurtful to everyone and I'm underestimating how how terrible it would it would be but I really needed sort of that understanding um so that also fortunately like I guess always the love of my family including yourself also allowed me to not go all the way in my selfishness <laughs> Thank you for sharing. That's uh, I don't think that's easy to share, but uh, it's beautiful to hear. I think that the the family is such a such an important part in this um, responsibility, mm -hmm. in meaning, and wanting to to live on, pass something forward. I want I want to I want to thank you, and I want to wrap up with mentioning a bit about what you're gonna do in October. Uh, yeah. This is a small channel, so not a lot of people here, but I thought, why not mention it? So, Especially, let, let's say that you're one of uh, Lucas' uh, German subscribers. In October, it will happen from the 27th until the 29th of October. We'll be, um, I'll be part of um, a festival called the Breakwater Festival. It's based on this idea of kind of what I've tried to, like the spirit of which I've tried to express throughout this conversation, which is this interest in bringing religious and non-religious people together. So it's based on this idea of, you know, breakwater or the estuary kind of where sweet and salt water meet uh, and create fertile ground 
for indeed well who knows um and i'll be speaking a lot more about nietzsche there uh, and there will be other speakers too so paul van der Klei from this little corner of the internet andrea with with banks as well um so if you're interested in any of the subject matters that lucas talks about but also want to maybe leave the screen and maybe join other people in discussing these matters then um uh, i think we can we add a link in the description of uh like to the yeah okay good yeah, absolutely then you can visit that website and uh, book your tickets if you like. Right. Thank you, sir. It's been a pleasure. We'll probably see a bit more of this uh, this man right here. I hope he starts his channel uh, at some point. I think he's going to have uh, some fruitful conversations. So thank I hope you. to do. I'll see. Okay. All right. Bye, brother. <laughs> I do love you. <laughs> I love you too, man. All right. <laughs>